In early September, something unusual happened in El Salvador. The country's president rolled out Bitcoin as official legal tender. The move makes it the first country in the world to officially put Bitcoin on its balance sheet and hold it in reserves. Nayib Bukele became the youngest president in the history of El Salvador in June of 2019. Since then, his governing style has relied on announcements on Twitter and a combative relationship with the press. Is it a violation to freedom of the press to deny your lies? With his innovative adoption of cryptocurrency as legal tender, the international community has turned its attention onto the millennial president. But Bukele's critics say this might be a distraction from what's really going on in the country. There's a lot more problems to solve before you come and impose a law that Salvadorans don't agree with. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is John Holman, and I'm a correspondent with Al Jazeera, and I cover mainly Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. And John traveled to El Salvador for the launch of the currency. So, John, how was the rollout of Bitcoin in El Salvador? The actual rollout of Bitcoin was probably a little bit more underwhelming than the president would have hoped for. On the morning, actually, that they did roll it out, there were problems with the digital wallets that the government had created to use Bitcoin to be able to receive it and do transactions. They called them Chivo, which is um, Salvadoran slang for cool, but they weren't that cool that morning. And actually, the president himself turned into doing tech support via Twitter in the course of the day, asking people, okay, can you send me the problems with your wallet so that we can try and fix this? And we did see that people were quite keen on the stations that he'd set up to help with this rollout of the Chivo to get the wallet. And the government actually gave people an incentive uh, to want to open these Chivo these new digital wallets because it put $30 worth of Bitcoin in each one. So we did see quite a few people, it wasn't like lines around the box, but quite a few people outside of the centres that we went to trying to work out how these digital wallets worked so that they could get this money into them and start trying to spend it. That doesn't mean necessarily that they were going to use Bitcoins forever after, but they were definitely keen on that first little windfall. And what were people telling you that you talked to about it? We actually got two couples who managed to actually make the digital wallet work and then got their $30 worth of Bitcoins and set off to get some lunch with them. And we followed them to Pollo Campero, which anyone from Central America will know is a big name. And in Salvador, everyone knows about this chicken place and loves it. So first of all, they went there to try and get some food, denied And then they went to Pizza Hut to try and get some food. President Nayib Bukele had actually tweeted out earlier on that Pizza Hut was going to be one of the places to accept it, but denied there also. And the people at the restaurants that we went to told us it might be happening at other branches. It might just be that here it's not happening. And there's probably more now that we're a little while after the rollout, but it definitely wasn't smooth on the day. And those guys went hungry after thinking they were going to get some delicious uh, pollo campero. So this decision to adopt Bitcoin as a parallel currency to the U.S. dollar was the brainchild of the 40-year-old president, Nayib Bukele. How popular was this move? 
the surveys that were done before Bitcoin said actually not that popular. And that's a sort of anomaly for him because a lot of the things that he's done since becoming president have chimed with a lot of Salvadorans. He's got a high approval rating. Generally, he sort of seems good at tapping into the mood and what people want in the country. But Bitcoin definitely wasn't one of those. But what has the government said the point is? What is the aim behind this? Okay, so this is the aim, according to the government. First of all, things like remittances. That's their biggest selling point, actually, with this, because Salvador is a country which depends a lot on remittances. They make up over 15% of the GDP in that country. And remittances, by the way, is people sending back money from the US, people who are in the US sending back back money to their families who are still in in El Salvador. So what the government said is if you send back remittances via Bitcoin, it's not going to cost anything for the people who are receiving that. And the government says that it's going to actually pick up the cost of converting those Bitcoins into dollars, saying that's really going to help out a lot of people. They won't have to use wire services anymore. What critics are saying about that is, okay, that might be free for those people. But in the end, if the government's picking up the cost of that, The taxpayer is picking up the cost of that because they fund the government. What the government's also said is that 70% of Salvadorans don't have a bank account. And this is a way for them to be able to get some sort of digital uh, banking going on, even if it's in bitcoins, for them to be able to save up a bit of money. The government would say they're not being forced to use bitcoin. um, And that's the counter argument there. But it's still a little bit of a questionable situation is what economists were telling us. And breaking down that questionable situation is that, say, someone gets paid in Bitcoin one day and the next day the value of it drops. They don't have the money they thought they had. So from what we gather in your reporting, Bitcoin as currency for a country can be dangerous. What did financial experts tell you? Definitely. Just as you're saying, a lot of it is about the volatility of it and what that could mean for individual citizens in the country. And we actually went to a pilot scheme for Bitcoin that's been running for the last three years in a nice uh, beach town called El Zonte on the Salvadoran coast, which was a really tough assignment for us. And (laughs) we spoke to Chele, who we met in his family restaurant. He was a surf instructor. He said he wasn't a fan uh, and he was pretty adamant about that. It's tough because it's unstable. For example, if you take a surf class and pay with Bitcoin, I can accept it. But the next day it goes down and there are losses for me. It's the same for the bar, the shop, everywhere. And Bitcoin obviously is a cryptocurrency. It's something that can be used relatively anonymously. We spoke to Carlos Acevedo, who's the ex-head of El Salvador's central bank, who told us that this could turn into a fiscal paradise for criminals. One of the advantages of Bitcoin is the anonymity, but for regulators, that's one of the risks. So the worry is that El Salvador turns into a fiscal paradise for those who want to launder money from drugs or corruption. It is a risk. But John talked to others who said the country has regulations in place to help mitigate that risk. I talked to actually an editor of a Bitcoin magazine who had been in in El Salvador for two months just to see how this all played out. And he said to me, El Salvador does still have laws and regulations around that. It's not like it's going to suddenly turn into Wild West. 
So, John, before the world turned its attention onto El Salvador's Bitcoin foray, there were several other things that were happening in the political realm in the country. In May, the National Assembly, dominated by the president's party, passed a bill to remove judges from the Supreme Court. In September, newly appointed judges ruled that presidents can serve two consecutive terms, which is contrary to what the Constitution says. So in the country, all eyes are on Bukele. Can you tell us more about what he's doing and why some of his critics call him dangerous? Yeah, definitely. I I think you've actually hit the nail on the head there in talking about the possibility now of re-election. So... We looked into it and the last Salvadoran president who was re-elected was a military dictator more than 70 years ago. There's also been other things as well. In September, judges over 60 in general in El Salvador were basically forcibly retired. Now, what the president's party said is that this is about fighting corruption and getting out the old bad blood from El Salvador and getting a space to get new judges in. Obviously, the question on that is, are those judges going to be completely neutral or are they going to be beholden in some way to the president and his party? It's actually interesting. I was talking to judges who were marching. The judges, some of them were over 60 and and were obviously caught up in this move to forcibly retire them. I said, but do you deny that there is corruption in the judiciary? And all of them said, no, there has been some corruption in the judiciary. The point of this is that there are ways to deal with that. There are protocols uh, to fire judges. So it's a moment when El Salvador's caught, I think, between trying to confront the way it's been misgoverned in the past, but also, could this go too far? So one particular thing that looks and sounds familiar to many journalists is President Bukele's treatment of the press. Some have compared him to the late Hugo Chavez, others to Donald Trump. And one media outlet in particular, the online newspaper El Faro, which is known for its investigations into government corruption, had one of its journalists expelled from the country. Another was denied a work visa. So what can you tell us about what's going on with the media industry? So during our time in El Salvador, we obviously spoke to local journalists about what was going on, their perceptions, including people from El Faro. And one thing that they mentioned to me is that they'd had a problem with work visas. They also said that they'd been audited repeatedly by this government. Now, just to put this into context, El Faro is a, a really well-respected investigative newspaper that's been a thorn in the side of lots of various Salvadoran presidents. It's not just been President Bukele and his administration. And they said that we've been audited before. It's sort of a tool that's been used, but never as fiercely as this time. And President Bukele's sort of taken to calling out certain journalists from that newspaper in particular in press conferences and also on Twitter. You say that the press here is under attack. So what are you all doing here then? Now, you're going to go to your newsrooms and write whatever you want. And in the case of Alfaro, he wrote a bunch of lies about the government. And what do we do? Deny them. So there's definitely a combative relationship there. And there is a sense, at least from the journalistic community, that President Bukele is pretty intolerant of criticism, if that comes from journalists or if that comes from NGOs in the country. One of the reporters from El Faro who was denied a work visa is French-American journalist Roman Gracier. 
He spoke to us from Guatemala. I started working with El Faro in 2019, first as a translator, then as an intern, and now as a staff reporter working primarily with El Faro English. Roman told us that Bukele's relationship with the press wasn't always this way. He said Bukele actually used a lot of the investigations into corruption of past governments done by Alfaro and other media outlets in the country during his campaign. Once in office, Bukele's relationship to the press quickly changed. And the best way to see that is to look at statistics gathered by the Salvadoran Association of Journalists. In 2020 alone, they registered 125 instances of abuse against reporters, ranging from denied access to press conferences, to financial persecution, online trolling campaigns, and even physical assaults, which cabinet ministers and legislators applauded on social media. In contrast, there were 16 incidents of abuse against reporters registered during the last year in power of Bukele's predecessor, Salvador Sanchez Seren. That's also according to the Association of Journalists of El Salvador. Now, the relationship between President Bukele and Alfaro has escalated to the point that's drawn international attention. This February, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights issued protective measures calling on the Salvadoran state to preserve the life and safety of all Alfaro staff and determining that Alfaro had been subject to harassment, threats, and stigmatization in our work. Soon after the ruling from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the government of El Salvador accused Alfaro of laundering money. And then Roman and Alfaro's editor, Daniel Lizarraga, a Mexican national, were denied their work permits. Migration officials showed up to where Lizarraga was staying in early July in hazmat suits and ordered him out of the country. The argument for expelling him from the country was that he had attempted to illegally work from the time that he had submitted his paperwork. While Lizarraga's case was still pending, I filed mine in parallel and received the legal advice to leave the country while I waited for the final decision. Reason being that El Faro-related paperwork was receiving a previously unseen amount of scrutiny. Two days after Lizarraga received his rejection letter, I received my own. For Roman, the world needs to keep its eyes on El Salvador. Kele and his party in the legislature took office undoubtedly democratically, and they have used that power and that popular mandate to take control of the land's highest court. Now, that highest court has granted a path to re-election to Bukele and will now have the power to replace one-third of the judiciary, which was forced into retirement. And when you take all of these as a collective, you see that there has been a radical departure in the last two years from the constitutional order and separation of powers that were established in the Constitution and enshrined in the peace accords. So, John, you mentioned the approval ratings of Bukele, which have around the 90% range. What have people you talked to told you about how they view the presidency? When the judges were actually marching, we peeled off from the march and went to talk to a few of the people that were watching them go by. Some people in favour, but we also found people who were watching them and who said, it's completely right what the president's doing. Things never got better for us, just for those on the top. Now the president's after them, and that's why they're angry, because he doesn't let them steal. That's the truth. He's a good president. He's a 10 out of 10. After that, we went into 
a neighborhood had been controlled by gangs and is controlled by gangs. And just put that into context for our audience, gangs in El Salvador have just been this huge problem for quite a few years now. A major turf war uh, between them that's resulted in a lot of killing, but also a lot of extorting and basically damaging and, and, and torturing the local population, which has meant that a lot of people have simply fled. They've had to migrate. So under President Bukele, the homicides have gone down and we met with a street artist who's painted murals all over this gang held barrio, this neighborhood, who told us, yes, we have to recognize he's lowered the homicide rate. We're living calmly now without problems. You can go and get a soda or a beer wherever around here. Before it wasn't like that. You wouldn't see a light in the street after 7 p.m. There's a lot of police here right now and that didn't exist before. He's also done things like in COVID, giving out money to people who needed it. The vaccination program under President Bukele has been good, and that's recognized even by his critics. He's managed to get that going and fast. So those things are really appreciated by people. I did ask those people that we talked to that are in favor of President Bukele, are you a little bit worried about the fact that he seems to be taking more and more power. And it was really interesting what the street artist said to me. He's like, well, it's just the same as we've seen before. And I took that to mean we've seen past governments try and do that in El Salvador. So even if he is trying to do that, at least we get something out of it this time. You know, and I think we all have to ask ourselves, if you were living in one of those neighborhoods, what would be more important to you? So when you were walking around the street artist's neighborhood and he was talking to you about lots more police, less crime, much safer. One of the things that that's linked to is an investigation by El Faro, where they say that Salvadorian prosecutors found evidence that the Bukele administration negotiated with some of the gangs, MS-13 and factions of Barrio 18, for a national reduction in homicides. And they also discovered that the Bureau of Prisons removed hundreds of logbooks and hard drives documenting those talks. So what do we know about it? Well, at the moment, what we know is what you just mentioned in that El Faro investigation and the fact that the government at the moment isn't willing to admit that. Now, if his government has actually made a truce with those gangs in El Salvador, that's not necessarily that well viewed by a lot of people. And that's because previous governments have also made truces with the gangs. And in each case, it has lowered the homicide rate. But it's also meant that peace within the gangs mean they're not killing each other, so the extortion goes on. Their business model of trying to get money from local businesses, from local people, has been able to continue. So the question now for the government is, how do they start to stop the extortion? How is the international community reacting? I think there's a lot of worry in the international community, no? whether that's from the United States, whether that's from different human rights organizations about this taking of power because I think it's something that anyone who's watched Latin America for the last few years, decades, whatever, has sort of feel that maybe they've seen this film before and they know how it perhaps turns out. An initially popular leader uses that to take more and more power and in the end, what do you have? Either a leader that's very autocratic or who possibly even turns into a dictator. So that's the worry at the moment, I think, Bukele is now free to run again in 2024, and you've been covering Central America for years. So from your vantage point, will any of the concerns 
the criticisms we talked about today, or even the gamble on Bitcoin, still matter in three years? I think it's really important to people in El Salvador that we, just judging by people that we talk to from the bottom upwards, that there is transparency, that there is a a system in which politicians are held accountable and they're not basically just stealing from the rest of the population. And it's early days yet on whether he can deliver that or whether his own party starts to get mired in the same sort of thing. And his critics would say that that's already begun in El Salvador. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliai, Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. We'll be back 